Um, well, I was, I was grateful to Sean for uh, challenging us before the worship to say, how can we be good listeners? Um, and as you, as you kind of uh, heard that text from 1 Samuel, or perhaps as you saw on the website or the email that you might have got saying, we're going to do a series in 1 Samuel, Samuel you might have thought, 1 Samuel, um, okay. Um, you might have known it's in the Old Testament. Um, and perhaps if, if you're like many, and me included, you sometimes read bits of the Old Testament stories and you think... How is, this, how is this relevant to us now? The stories are sometimes a bit jarring. You get some stuff which is a bit fruity, and you're like, well, what do I do with that? How do I apply that to my life? How does this teach me about God and Jesus and the stuff that we're meant to believe now? Um, if you've had those thoughts, I hope that this series in 1 Samuel will be helpful. Um, because although the stories in 1 Samuel are ancient, we don't know who wrote it, um, it was probably written, well, we don't know exactly when it was compiled, but it, the stories that it talks about were probably about 3,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. Different culture, different context, um, uh, and a little bit alien. And yet, although we are perhaps more advanced technologically, our medicine might have improved a little bit, um, the human condition is still the same. And actually what we find as we engage with these stories is, is we haven't changed an awful lot. And the people we encounter and the stories we encounter are incredibly relevant. Um, but why one Samuel? Fair question to ask. One quick answer. One answer as to why we're going to look at one Samuel for a little bit. And bizarrely, I'm going to take you to the book of Judges. So in the, in the Old Testament, this is, this is kind of vaguely interesting but stick with me for the less interesting bit because it does get more interesting um the in in the in the hebrew bible which is the bible jesus would have read as a first century jew the order of the books went judges followed straight straight after by one samuel we have little book of ruth squeezed in between and if you're familiar with judges it's the one with samson the strong man and gideon the one that kind of whittles down the army, all those great stories. Some amazing things in there, though quite challenging. At the end of Judges, there is a horrific story, genuinely horrible story, of a young woman who's raped and murdered. And it's a, it's a, it's a gruesome ending. Um, and her body is dismembered. And, and it's meant to shock us. And we're meant to go, what, what has come? What, what, how? And then the very last verse of Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. It was a you-do-you society. You uh, prioritize your happiness. You take your own truth and, and live by that. Do whatever you want, because there was no one in charge. And as we read that last verse of Judges, we think, well, that is not too far removed from a familiar culture today to our culture. Um, and it is into that culture, so familiar to ours, that one Samuel and the stories that we read about are written and, and kind of they arrive in our Bible. And so I think it is a very relevant book to be looking at to see what is God going to say at this key time. Um, and the key question of one Samuel is who will be king? And we, we, we immediately thought, is it Samuel, this baby that we've heard read, uh, born just now? Will it be Samuel? No. Will it be David or Saul? Who's going to be king? And as Israel works out who's going to be king, what the narrative gets us to think about is not just who will be king of Israel 3,000 years ago, but who is king now? 
Who will be king in your life? Who will be king of this world? Um, that is the big question. And so as we look at it, it's history, but it's not history as we might understand it today. It's theological history, which means it's a narrative designed to get us to ask that question through the stories that we read about and apply them to ourselves um, before God. And so God uses these ancient stories of Hannah and Samuel, of Jonathan and David, of Saul, to teach us about himself, to teach us about salvation, to teach us actually about Jesus, and to teach us about ourselves and what we're like. And he starts here in chapter one, that we've just had read, with a story about a very ordinary woman who had a broken heart. An ordinary woman with a broken heart. And we know the reason she had a broken heart. Many here will know the pain of childlessness. Um, I'm told, according to the internet, um, that, that one in seven couples will experience um, difficulty conceiving. For some, that difficulty to conceive becomes permanent. And it is hard. It breaks our hearts. Um, it can be like a grief. Um, grieving perhaps the life that we expected and hoped for. Um, and that is where Hannah finds herself at the beginning of 1 Samuel, in that grief. Um, but it's even worse for her. I don't know if you saw, but her husband, Elkanah, he loves her, but he seems to have done the kind of Old Testament equivalent of surrogacy, and he's taken a second wife who can conceive. And so verse 2 of our reading, the writer says pretty brutally, um, Peninnah had children, Hannah had none. Peninnah means fruitful. Harsh. Um, it's brutal. Uh, by the way, polygamy. Um, <laughs> let's just get that one out there. Two wives. Um, it's a thing in the Old Testament. Um, I think Genesis 2, second book of the Bible, suggests that it shouldn't be a thing. Um, more about that another time. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So on the, top of, on the top of the grief of not having her own children, she now has to share a house with a woman who does have children. Plenty of children. And what is more, verse two, oh, sorry, sorry, verse 7, Peninnah provoked her until she wept. Who is this woman? Not a nice woman. And it seems like it was particularly bad when they did their trips to the temple for sacrifice and worship um, because that was the point that the family, they, they've offered their worship, their sacrifice to God, and the sin offering would be destroyed and some would be taken for the priest and other bits of the offering, thanksgiving and peace offerings and things like this, would be shared by the family and have a feast at their, the temple. And the, an Elkanah hands out the food and he goes, Peninnah, there you go, there's your portion and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight portions for your children. And he turns to Hannah and actually he didn't need to give her anything as a barren woman but he chooses to give her a portion. The Hebrew is unclear there, apparently. Not a Hebrew expert, but apparently it shouldn't be, may not be double portion, but he gives her a portion because he loves her. But it's just the one portion because there's no children to hand it around to. And Peninnah goes, oh, no, just the one portion for you, is it, Hannah? Oh, right, I, got, I got six or seven here because I've got six, seven children. He provokes her until she cries. It's a horrible, horrible story, isn't it? This barren woman with a broken heart. She leaves the meal because she's in a state because she's been provoked to crying. In verse 10, she's in deep anguish 
She's weeping bitterly and she just pours out her soul to God. She prays to God. Um, Sometimes tears are heard by God as prayers, which I think is encouraging. Uh, When the priest Eli thinks that she's drunk because she's muttering under her breath, she's praying, she's she's not kind of vocalizing things. He he kind of goes, oh, it's another one of those women who's had too much to drink at the feast. She says, no, I'm, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I'm, I'm pouring out my soul to God. Her, her name, Hannah, means favoured. She doesn't feel favoured by God. She has a broken heart. And let's pause at that point in the story and think about a broken heart. Many here will resonate with Hannah, perhaps directly with that experience of childlessness. Others perhaps experiencing a broken heart for different reasons. And I want us to notice what she does in that moment of being broken. She turns to God. And I say that not because I think that we should, when we're broken, go, oh, if I turn to God, then my situation will be fixed and that will be better. We don't use God as an instrument. But what I want us to see with what Hannah does is she turns to God and she pours her entire self out before her, him. And, and what I want us to see is that therefore we have a God who we can come to in pieces, as Hannah does. We, can ha- we have a God who can hear us crying. We have a God who is safe for the barren woman to turn to in her brokenness. We have a God who is safe for us to turn to in our brokenness. Prayer, prayer is messy here. It is much more like a child crying out before their mum or dad, not a technique or some magic words to say in a particular building or particular place. It is this woman pouring her soul out. But it is even more than that because this moment of anguish and crying and praying is the hinge for the whole book of 1 Samuel. Because this broken heart of a childless woman is where it all really starts, if you think about it. We wouldn't have Samuel and therefore the book without this moment. And that tells us that that moment of utter brokenness is where God gets going. A broken heart is the perfect conditions for God to get to work. Because, well, we have to lean on him. We've got nothing else. And that's all that God requires of us. So that's the first bit of the story, a broken heart. A broken heart, but it goes on wonderfully. And so we get to a broken heart rejoices. A broken heart rejoices. Uh, and the priest, the priest, Eli, once he understands she's not drunk, he says, all right, go and go in peace and get, ask for God's peace. Verse 18, she eats something. Um, which can be a good idea if we're sad. Verse 19, they, uh, um, PG warning here, PG, uh, or maybe it's a 12A, or I don't know. Um, it's fruity. So verse 19, it says they worship early doors early in the morning and they go back and have sex at home. Um, that's, what happened, that's what it says in the, in the Bible. Um, presumably that was mid-morning. All sorts of practicality to consider there with two wives and several children. We're not told the precise details. But look at the end of verse 19. (laughs) The Bible is real life. Um, Verse 19, Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. That's the turning point of the whole narrative. The Lord remembered her. Um, Of course, the Lord remembering her is not the same as, you know, forgotten so-and-so's name and then it comes to mind. That's not what it means. Um, It is God acting in accordance with his character, remembering those great promises of old to Abraham that he would bless a nation and bless the entire world. And he thinks, no, this this is even bigger than Hannah's prayer. 
Um, this, this baby that she will get is not just an answer to, the, to her prayer, but she's swept up into something much, much bigger. Um, this baby will be part of something much bigger. So for now, Hannah keeps her word, takes the young child when it's weaned, which is probably around three or four in that culture, and she dedicates him to God. She hands him over. And then we didn't have this read, um, but we get this wonderful song and prayer in chapter two of 1 Samuel. By the way, it's on page 271, I think, 1 Samuel 1. So it's good to have it open. And in that prayer, Hannah is rejoicing at what God has done and the way he works. And it's a beautiful, beautiful bit of scripture. Um, God has delivered her from the shame that she felt. God has turned everything upside down, her expectations. She praises God as that one who turns things upside down. The warrior's bow is broken. The strong ones are weak. The weak ones are strengthened. The barren woman has seven children. The woman with lots of children is pining. Can you see it? Everything's upside down when God gets to work. Those who stumble are armed with strength. The, the needy are raised from the ash heap. The poor are seated with princes. It's wonderful. And then verse nine, at the end of that verse, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. She's rejoicing in who God is and what he's done. His topsy-turvy ways. And God's answer to her for a, little, for a baby is, is like a little picture of this great salvation. So you know in, in de detective dramas, um, I think one of the most popular is Line of Duty. I'm just going to go and grab my prop. Um, in, in, in detective dramas, often the detectives will, will kind of, there'll be a, if there's a serial killer, he'll have an MO. Do you know 